You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, this is Dr. Miriam Brand, and I am back with another episode. And once again, I welcome Melissa Cantor, who is going to help me by asking questions at, uh, at strategic points. And she has told me that this time it's okay and you guys can hear her voice. Uh, hopefully that'll work for every question. I, I'm not going to guarantee it's going to work for every question. But I thought um, I'd like to introduce her. This is Melissa Cantor. And Melissa, maybe, Melissa, maybe you'd like to, to tell us how you actually say your real last name. Hi, everyone. This is Melissa Frankevacki. I have a good Greek last name, and I'm happy to be here. Frankevacki? Frankevacki. Oh, Frankevacki. Like, like, thaki. like, okay. Oh. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for um, gracing me and us with your presence. And today I'm very excited because we're saying goodbye to demons for a while, which I have, I got so sick of demons, guys. I'm really sorry. I know that some of you are really into demons. And, you know, they're fun for a while, but after a while, I just like, you have no idea. And now we are moving on to the evil inclination, which is a, another view of sin, which interacts, of course, with these beliefs in demons during the Second Temple period. I'm not going to ignore beliefs in demons. And it, and I'm, I know that in separating them out, what I've done is a little artificial, as it's always artificial, to separate anything out when we discuss it. But there really is a distinction. And in general, in earlier Second Temple texts, and by earlier I mean, or rather, no, not in earlier Second Temple texts. In Second Temple texts, it's very unusual to see a mix of evil inclination and demons. There are maybe a couple texts, and if you say that the testaments of the 12 patriarchs are from the Second Temple period, or a Jewish text from the Second Temple period, if you say that, then it does have a mix. But it's unusual. And to me, the fact that that work has a mix of evil inclination and demons in, in a single description actually points to, the, to a later providence. But of course, I have a certain uh, focus on specifically the origin of sin, and I'm not looking at all the other factors in that work. So what did we see with demons? Uh, one of the things we, well, one of the basic things we saw about demons is that demons in, this, in the Second Temple period are really being used to solve problems in texts. There are problems of how could God do X? Or how could God allow X? And if we have a demon, that solves the problem. Well, it's a demon. And then we create another problem, which is, well, if there's this really powerful demon, I thought God was all powerful. And then we have to find a solution for that. So, for example, with Blial, we saw that the Qumran community solved the problem by saying Blial is allowed to rule during this period, but there is a predetermined end to the rule of Blial. And that somehow makes it much more palatable. Uh, and what we saw was that for, uh, what Jubilees does in the Watchers is something else that they bring the Watchers into, or the Watchers' descendants, I should say, under the wing of the angel Mastema, who has a function in the divine court. And then you get closer to what we consider kind of a satanic figure, like you have in the introduction to Job, where there's a 
a a demonic figure who has a role in the divine order. It's hard to really call him purely evil. However, in Jubilees, Mastema really is treated as an evil character and as the villain. And so what Jubilees does is it gives, it presents this kind of chain of blessings and prayers from its audience's forefathers that are supposed to protect the people who are reading or listening to this book. And so they should... So it's taken for granted that everyone believes in demons, but if you take Jubilees and you believe in it, then you could say, well, I'm protected because I'm a righteous person. I'm a descendant of Noah. I'm a descendant of Yaakov. I'm a descendant of people who have been protected through blessings and prayers against this demonic influence. However, as we saw, one of the things that we saw in prayer and uh, particularly prayer against evil forces, we saw that uh, the people who were scared of the influence of the Watcher's descendants, right, those that they call bastards because they, they uh, resulted from an illicit union, they really do see these spirits not as part of a divine order, not as subservient to Mastema, but as chaotic, anarchic, really anarchic forces that came into being through disobedience and we can understand why that approach in itself uh, solves the problem of bl blaming God. You're not blaming God. These are, these are horrible creatures that were created by disobedience to God, and therefore in prayer, you can ask God for help against them. So it's interesting to always place the demons that are involved in a certain text into the context of what people were wrestling with and what they wanted to describe and what they wanted to deal with. Now, this is true for the evil inclination as well. I'm going to remind you with the basic problem that a lot of Second Temple texts and Second Temple authors are dealing with, and that is the problem of theodicy and a certain aspect of the problem of theodicy. What is the problem of theodicy? In its purest form, we can call it, and theodicy means justification of God. So the problem that theodicy is dealing with is if God is all-knowing, and God is benevolent, and God is all-powerful, then how can there be evil in the world, right? Now, of course, you need all these components. In other words, if God's not all-powerful, but he's benevolent, then the answer to that problem is, well, he's not all-powerful, so he can't prevent the evil. He would like to, but he can't. But if you're in a monotheistic system where God is all-powerful and there's only one of him and he's not arguing with anyone of equal power, then how can you say that? If you say he's not benevolent, then that's pretty easy. You say, well, you know, it's, uh, we, you know um, we serve an angry God and, uh, and it sucks, right? But of course, in Judaism and in the Judeo-Christian tradition, in general, God is considered to be benevolent. Now, this is a problem. The problem of theodicy, of how can there be evil, of course, goes way back into the biblical prophets. Uh, Havakuk particularly deals with it. But if we, um, if we take a look at what, the second, what Second Temple Jews are particularly bothered by, they're not only bothered by the presence of evil, they're actually bothered by the desire to sin. What do I mean? I mean that there's another aspect of theodicy. And that is, if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and benevolent, and God doesn't want me to sin, then why do I want to sin? 
Now, uh, you've probably heard me say before, uh, when I teach undergraduates this, and I say it, so why do I want to say automatically say because it's fun. And I say, but why is it fun? It doesn't, the fact that it's fun is not an answer for Second Temple Jews. On the contrary, why should it feel fun if God doesn't want me to do it? And they need an explanation. So one explanation can be the influence of demons. And another explanation that's a very popular explanation is an idea that humans have an inclination towards evil. The human will somehow naturally tends towards evil. And it's just always been that way. Is it a way of testing belief? What, what do you mean by your question? It could be if he's benevolent and all ruling that we'd all just believe with no question and we wouldn't <gasps> sin. But is this a way of testing us? Oh, so that is an explanation that's given. It's an explanation that's given in Judith, uh, in the book of Judith. Uh, but in general, it's not a particularly popular explanation. Um you have it a little bit maybe in the Psalms of Solomon, but in general, it's not a very popular explanation in this period. Um, I think because it's so it's so unsatisfactory to some for someone who's really suffering. Um, I think uh, yeah, I, I think probably that's why. Because for someone who's really suffering, being told, well, this is a test, you kind of want to sock them one. I mean, there there are there are people who are who, who are oh, yeah, yeah, it's a test, but uh, for a lot of people, it's. Um, it's hard to it's hard to think that way. Maybe that's why. Maybe it's that's why. But it does show up. It does show up as one of the possible explanations. Um, however, it seems to be much more uh, of an explanation that's simply a natural part of being a human being. That this is a natural part of being human because uh, humans are not angels and humans are not God. And so, as a basic part of being a human, there's this inclination towards evil. It, it's hard to explain to understand how this is supposed to get God off the hook. Because if God created a human in that way, then why? Then why couldn't God have created humans in some other way? So um, it, it isn't clear if uh, much, much later Leibniz is going to come up. You know, when he's taking a break from um, from uh, creating algebra, right? It was algebra or calculus created calculus Leibniz? Well, whatever Leibniz created, <laughs> I should remember. But when he took a break from that, he decided to create a new solution for theodicy, and his solution was the best of all possible worlds. If any of you read, have read Candide, you remember this being uh, what Pangloss keeps saying, that it's the best of all possible worlds. That's Voltaire's critique of Leibniz. And Leibniz says the reason that there is evil is that we don't understand it, but in fact... This is the best of all possible worlds. The best of all possible worlds must contain some evil. And we don't understand it, but God knows the infinite possibilities of worlds that there could be. And God knows that the best of all possible worlds requires some evil. Now, uh, many of you are probably familiar with a modern, um, a modern twist on this, which is, well, we need free will. If you think of it, that's, it's, this, that's a type of Leibniz's of the Leibniz uh, solution, which is, well, for this to be an ideal world, we all need free will. For us to have free will, we need to have the capacity for evil and for sin, and therefore people sin. You understand? And and then, or and therefore people do evil things. Um, it doesn't quite explain things like tsunamis, though. That explanation, but it is an explanation from sin for sin, and we're going to see that explanation when we look at Ben Sira. 
It's in fact the first explanation I'm usually given when I say to, let's say, a, uh, any, a modern Orthodox Jew. Whenever I say to any modern Orthodox Jew, I say, this is what I'm studying. And they say, don't you know, the answer is that we all have free will and it's up to us whether to choose bad or good. And I say, that's excellent. That's what Ben Sira says. There are other explanations. There are other explanations. And this was not so obvious to Jews in the Second Temple period. Now, when I talk about this aspect of theodicy as coming up in the Second Temple period, what I mean to say is this was not a problem in earlier biblical books. What do I mean? I say, but what do you mean? You're going to start talking about Noah, where we first see the phrase, the evil inclination or the inclination of human beings being bad. So if we already have this as an explanation of where sin is coming from, or if we have the oracle to Cain, which I've already discussed at length, talking about sin, isn't there there so that you have a problem of how, why do people sin? And the answer is not really. If you read these stories, there are assumptions of why people are evil, but it's not a problem. No one's, no one's going, how can this be? How can we believe in a God or how does God allow this to happen? If you compare it to Job or you compare it to Havakuk, we're saying, how can evil people be allowed to exist? How can bad things happen to good people where this is a real, a real problem? And it's something that really pains the speakers or the writers or whoever is dealing with it. We don't see that that way of talking about the origin of sin until we come to the Second Temple period. Now, again, we've discussed the demonic origin of sin at length, and now we're going to talk about the idea of sin being a part of the basic human makeup. Now, we've already, we have already talked, of course, about the Adam and Eve story. And I mentioned at the time that the, while the Adam and Eve story is not a particularly prevalent as an explanation of sin during while the temple stands, we have books from right after the destruction, namely Fourth Ezra and Second Baruch, which show that people are thinking about sin as being something that it's uh, as as coming from the evil heart of the evil inclination that was given to Adam, either that Adam was created with or that he somehow got as a result of the sin. We're going to come back to that idea later. But right now, we're actually going to look at what Jews were thinking about while the temple stood. And even and earlier than that, we're going to actually look at the biblical books. So what are we going to look at first in terms of the Bible? We're going to look at the story of Noah. Now, this is different from what I did before. Because before, when I started with Adam and Eve, and I started with Cain and Abel, and then I went into Noah and talked about, and then I went into the Watcher story in Genesis 6, and then we talked about Noah, um, it was clear that in at least some of those cases, uh, Second Temple Jews were drawing from the biblical text, less in Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, more in the story, more in Genesis 6 and Noah. Here, however, uh, Jews from the Second Temple period are not really drawing from the Noah story to understand the evil inclination, not in particular. Um, however, 
What we can see is, and this is this is going to distance ourselves a little bit from the modern Jewish perception of the evil inclination. And I mean the Yetzer Hara, or the Yetzer Hara, depends where you grew up. Right? Where I grew up was the Yetzer Hara. Um, and that's the evil inclination as he appears in the Talmud and in rabbinic texts. And that is kind of a personified evil inclination, almost a demon who wants bad things for the person and tries to influence the person. It's he's almost a personal Satan. He's sometimes described as part of the person. Usually he's described as an antagonist to the person. And that is almost taken for granted in rabbinic Judaism and certainly in later Judaism that the evil inclination is this is something we can point to and say, oh, the evil inclination wants me to do this, but I'm not going to listen to him. Okay. Now, and of course, uh, I believe I've told this story before, but if you've listened to the music uh, that uh, that introduces this podcast, Sarli Zien, da 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 da. Um, that music played in the background of a record that I had as a child, where a little girl named Sarah is walking on the Sabbath, and she and they actually call it the Sabbath. I think on the record it was called the Sabbath, and she sees a dime. And she hears one voice telling her, oh, Sarah, don't pick up the dime. It's the Sabbath, you know. And then the other voice is saying, pick up the dime, Sarah. You can buy 10 candies with that dime. And even as a little girl, I wanted to know where Sarah shopped because I had never seen 10 candies for a dime. But I also had never experienced these voices. And I just kind of, I just kind of suspended my disbelief. And I was like, okay, this character hears voices. It's kind of interesting. And, um, and I never knew why I... I used to listen to this record over and over, actually. And I only realized why I got into the topic I did when I was walking down the shelves of the National Library, and I started humming this tune from the record. Again, it's, it's Bizet's La Lisienne, but it goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I start, I was humming it. I'm like, wait a second, why am I humming this? It's because as I'm looking for sources about this, I'm, I'm remembering that record that I listen, used to listen to over and over again. And that's why when I decided for on a tune for the podcast, I was like, I've got to get La Lisienne. <laughs> yeah. Imagine how boring that story would have been if she'd seen the diamond and said, oh yeah, I can't pick it up. Then she kept walking you wouldn't have learned from it you wouldn't have been thinking about it all these years later it's true but they also wouldn't have made it on the record <laughs> exactly you have to have an antagonist somewhere in any yeah. story yeah yeah and 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 i think that's a very good point because then what you have is the the yetzer hara in rabbinic judaism is the classic antagonist the classic personal antagonist not not just a satan who threatens the jewish people but a kind of a personal Satan that threatens you. And then it can say, well, you should not listen to him. He wants your death, and you should drag him down to the, the, the Beit Midrash and study Torah, and that will help you defeat him. And all, all, these, all these things that it says in the, in the Talmud. Um, my niece, my brother-in-law, used to constantly say to my niece, oh, you don't want that. It's your Yetzir Hara that wants that, until she finally said to him, no. I want it. My Yetzirah has nothing to do with it. 
I thought that was a very healthy development in her psyche. <laughs> yes. Um, but at any rate, so what the reason I'm going back to the Bible here is that I want to kind of take us away from this later rabbinic idea of an evil inclination. Because what we're going to see is when we read the biblical text, an evil inclination is simply a human inclination towards doing bad things. That's what it is. And that's what it is for most in most of Second Temple literature. Now, there are exceptions. I'm going to point them out as we, when we meet them, when we see them. But in general, the evil inclination is simply a human inclination towards bad things. I will add that when I did my study and what I will continue to do in this podcast is not just look at places where the words Yetzer Hara or Yetzer Ra or even Yetzer are used. I'm going to look at where there are other words that are used to describe the same concept. In other words, I'm looking at the concept of a human inclination. I'm not just trying to find out where the phrase comes from. I want to see how does the actual idea of a human inclination towards sin, how is it used? And we're going to see that it's used just like we saw that demons were used to solve problems or to emphasize certain things. We're going to see the same thing with evil inclination. And just as we saw that demons could be used, quote unquote, in an atmosphere of, of determinism, you know, where everything's determined, you're either part of the lot of Leal or you're part of the lot of God, of God or, in, or in terms of emphasizing free will, like the idea of you can be a hypocrite and place yourself in the lot of Leal, for example, we'll see that the evil inclination is also used, sometimes emphasizing free will, and that's particularly in uh, legal texts, introductions to legal texts, and sometimes emphasizing determinism, because after all, you are born with an evil inclination. That's, that's the idea, it, it, at least in the more pessimistic views. So we're going to talk about um, non-sectarian books like Ben Sira, and we're also going to talk about uh, texts that are particular to the Dead Sea community, like the Hodayot, which are prayer texts, and many others. But first, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look back at the biblical text, which again is going to allow us to kind of shed some of the later ideas of, an, of a personified evil inclination. I'm turning to the story of the flood. And I would just like to remind you that the story of the watchers, or you could say B'nai Elohim Adam, the uh, literally the sons of God and the daughters of man is right before the flood in Genesis. So Genesis 6, 1 to 4, we have the story of these, uh, ain let's say, angels who mated with human women and uh, resulted in the heroes of old. And then right after that, we have God's decision to, uh, to flood the earth because of human evil, essentially. And so it's not, again, it's not a surprise that in the Second Temple period, these two stories were considered to be connected. However, in the Bible itself, there's no explicit connection between what happens before, what becomes a watcher's myth, and the story of the flood. So how does the story of the flood begin? I'm reading from chapter 6 verse 5 and forward. And I'd just like to remind you, those of you who are listening uh, or from a Jewish tradition, that if I say a complete verse, I will say God's name. Okay. And God saw that the evil of man, the evil of humans, was great upon the earth. 
And the yetzer of the thoughts of his heart were just evil all day. What is the yetzer? We usually translate it as the inclination. The inclination of the thoughts of his heart are just evil all day. It also could mean the form of the thoughts of his heart are evil all day. In other words, the, 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 the thoughts of his heart are evil all day. That's, that's their, their form. And God regretted that he made man on the land. He was very upset. And God said, I will wipe out man. I will wipe out the man or the humans I created from on the face of the earth. This is very interesting. From people to animals. Ad remes v'ad crawling, including crawling things and the birds of the sky. Because I regretted that I ever made them. Now, this is very strange because who was evil? Who had an evil inclination or the thoughts of their heart, which would be the, really means the heart, thoughts of their mind, right? The heart is considered in the ancient times, the heart is where thoughts reside. The heart, heart's where you think. So the thoughts, your thought, their thoughts are evil all day. Their plans, one assumes, are evil all day. And because of that, God's going to wipe out everything. Everything, all animals, everything that crawls on the earth, all the birds, what's missing, the fish, for obvious reasons, they're going to be fine. But everything else is going to be wiped out because of human evil. All right? V'nach matzachen b'enei Adonai. And nach found favor in the eyes of God, so Noach is going to be saved uh, from the flood, Noach and his family. So we have the flood, everything's wiped out. When the waters recede and Noach and his family and all the animals come out of the ark, what, what happens? He First thing he does, he, Noach builds an altar, he sacrifices to God, and then an interesting thing happens. And now I'm reading from chapter 8, verse 21. After God smells the smell of the sacrifice, God says to himself, I will no longer curse the earth for man or because of man. Because the yetzer, the inclination, the form of the of the of the heart of man, or the mind of man, we could say, is evil from his youth. And I will no longer continue to smite everything living the way I did, or the way I have done. What's changed? We started with people all being evil, because they all have this inclination to evil. We're ending with people all having an inclination to evil, why did the did it mean a flood the first time, and then the second, it means that there will never be there will never be a flood again, and the answer is in the consequences. If you recall, what happened before the flood is that because people have this inclination toward evil, God's wiping everything out, and at the end, God's like, hey. These people are evil. They're evil from their youth. They're evil from the beginning. They're basically, they have this basic inclination to evil. Now, I want to point something out. Yetzel, the word yetzel is not evil by definition because it has to be called evil. He says his yetzel, either his inclination or the form of his thoughts, whatever it actually mean, meant originally, 
that for people, that is evil. It's evil from their youth. Therefore, I cannot wipe out the earth whenever people are evil because they're going to be evil. Now, how can we understand this in the context of Genesis? If we read Genesis as a whole text from Adam and Eve, if you'll recall when I, uh, when I talked about Adam and Eve and what the curse of Adam and Eve meant in the context of eating from the tree of knowledge, eating from the tree of knowledge uh, gives them knowledge which they didn't have previously, the knowledge that separates people from animals. So they knew that they, had to, they needed clothing, something animals never need. Right, unless you're in Zootopia. I, I love that scene where they go to the Nooners colony in Zootopia. It was really funny. But um, if you're not in Zootopia and you're an animal, you do not need clothing. You will never, you'll never think of clothing. Humans need clothing. And then the curse that they receive has to do with being even more human. Chava, Eve, is going to have pain in childbirth. She's not going to have easy or automatic childbirth the way animals do. Adam is going to have to work for his bread. He's going to have to farm. He can't graze. These are people. However, they don't eat meat. And we know they don't eat meat if we read it as a, as a continuous narrative because only Noah, only after Noah leaves the ark does God tell him, now you can eat animals. Now you can eat any animal you want. Why? Because humans have become that much more distant from animals. Humans can do evil. Animals can only be animals. A tiger who attacks a person is not being evil. A tiger who attacks a person is just being a tiger. But people can be evil. And that's even more of a disconnect from animals. So once Noah leaves the ark, God allows him to eat animals. That's the final division. You are There's no longer connection between people and animals. People can eat, can kill and eat animals. Who can't they kill? And this also is clear after this. People. Why does God have to follow a commandment saying you can eat animals to say you can't kill people? Because, hey, I can kill to eat. No, people are different. You can kill animals. Animals are something else now, are something completely divided from you. But you cannot kill people. So it's people who have this inclination towards evil. What confuses me about this yeah. are words like regret and curse. And it's almost like God is saying that there was a mistake. But when I think about God, it's not mistake is not what comes to mind. A being like that doesn't make mistakes. And yet... He almost erases everything, and then he brings it back, but almost in the same way. They're still evil. Right. So what's interesting here is, first of all, that it really is using terms for God and God saying things to himself and God deciding things for himself as if he didn't know. That's certainly the way this narrative is presenting it is as if God's like, oh, I just realized this, right? Now, Obviously, we can go back and say, well, really, this whole thing was a setup. And you can, and, and there have absolutely been commentaries like that where they said this God was giving people a chance, right? God knew this would happen, but he was giving people a chance. And in the end, they, they were going to be, you know, they were just that corrupt, right? Um, however... The idea that did God make a mistake? And this is this actually really carries through in Second Temple. It's a very good question. And it, it really highlights something that carries through in Second Temple thought about this. 
which is that there's something about humans and the way that humans have to be that includes this basically basic inclination to evil. In other words, there's something about humans being human, which means they're going to have this evil inclination. So it's the same way, like if we were saying, uh, why aren't humans like tigers and that I, whatever I do, I'm just being a human. It's no, no good or evil. The answer is, well, then that's not being a human. Being a human means that there are things that we consider good and things that we consider evil. And so there are certain things you can do that are evil. And, and there is this idea, those texts that focus not on demons, but rather focus on an evil inclination, really do see this as part of human reality. This is simply the way humans are made up because they are human. And they never have an explanation. They never say, and, and in the Bible, it doesn't say God doesn't decide to create people with an evil inclination. That, that's nothing, that's not something that happens. It's as if God discovers they have an evil inclination once they all become corrupt, once they all go bad. And in fact, there's something that I, I actually didn't mention in going over the Noah story, which sheds important light on the idea that humans are the fact that if humans are basically evil and there's no division between them and animals, then their corruption is catching, right? Because it says in, in chapter 6, verse 11, after God has already decided he's going to wipe everything out, it seems to, it's going back and explaining and uh, in kind of a parallel uh, version. And the land was corrupted before God and it was filled with Hamas, which seems to be something like something like violence or corruption. And God saw the land and behold it was corrupted, because all flesh had corrupted its path on the earth. And the question is, how can all flesh corrupt its path? How can a tiger be corrupt? Only people can be corrupt. And in fact, um, when um, uh, in, in, in rabbinic commentaries, it talks about how because people were so corrupt, animals started being corrupt. How can an animal be corrupt? Well, the species intermingled, species mated with each other, which is not the natural way of things. It's not the natural order. However, there seems to be in, in this stage of, in this stage of, let's say, prehistory, the way it's being presented is there's a continuum between people and animals. So in that way, people's, people's evil somehow communicates itself to animals' evil. If you guys will recall when we talked about the Watcher's story, the Watcher's myth also takes that idea. It says, says that, oh, that because the giants are corrupt, they cause corruption, they cause violence over the entire earth. So it's, that's, it's actually, it's, that's actually using that idea from the flood. But here we see that the idea is if people can do evil and there's no division between people and animals, the entire earth can easily become corrupt. And that ends after the flood when God does the final disconnect between people and animals because people, by being human, have this capacity for evil and even this tendency towards evil. And again, this idea that having a capacity for evil is something that is baked into being a human is something that we see, uh, we see that idea a lot in Second Temple literature. And again, without an explanation of why God would do that, right? There's, there's, there seems to be a, an idea that, of course, this is the way 
people were created until again, until we get to these books that we have fourth Ezra and second Baruch after the destruction. And we will talk again about those later. Is there an explanation anywhere as to why Noah wasn't as corrupt and evil as everybody else? If you're saying that humans by nature have evil and corruption, then what separated Noah from everybody else? In the Bible itself, it gives an explanation that Noah, and I'm now I'm reading from chapter 6, verse 9, um, Noah ish tzadik tamim haya bedorotav. Noah was a righteous, or you could say just a pure man in his generations. And what seems to be saying is that Noah was unusual in that he did justice. And, and we take the word tzaddik to mean righteous, but tzaddik in, uh, in a pure, in its kind of purest form, simply means he's innocent of all wrongdoing. If you're talking about a court case, right, to be the tzaddik means you didn't do the wrong thing that people are accusing you of. Noah is not doing evil, even when other people are doing evil. Um, but it, it, it's more than that, because it says that, uh, that Noah walked with God. So it means, so Noah is particularly uh, righteous and particularly just in his generation. And uh, what Rashi says is, well, he was good for his generation, but he wouldn't necessarily be good in a different generation. But the way I, like, I read it is it's emphasizing just how bad his generation was. In other words, he was good in his generation, but everyone else sucked. Good, but not perfect. Um. Well, I mean, later on we see that he's not perfect when he gets drunk, right? But I, I don't think that it necessarily at, in this point says he's not perfect because it says he's a, he's a tamim, which you can read as being pretty, being perfect. I mean, that's a way you could read that word. We, we tend to not see him as perfect because we, we know what happens after he gets out of the ark when he has a vineyard and gets drunk. Um, but the, I don't. I don't think that he's. He has. You. So you could read it either way. You could say he's not perfect, but he doesn't do bad, or he's righteous and he's he's close to God, or you could read it as well. He's perfect, you know, and so he's not tarred, you know, with the same uh, brush that everyone else is. Uh, you could read it either way. I tend to read it in in that he's not perfect, but he's pretty darn good. I mean, he he really is. A, he really is a righteous person. So just to recap, what we've seen in the first biblical mention of what could be called an evil inclination is the idea that, first of all, people naturally have this inclination towards bad. Because of this, they need to be completely disconnected from animals, where people are something else. But some interesting things we've seen about the term yetzel inclination is that it doesn't have to be evil. You need kind of... um, the descriptor of evil to say that it's evil, right? People's, the form of their thoughts or the inclination of people's thoughts could have been good all day, but in fact, they're evil all day. And this seems to be something natural to the makeup of people as people. Now, again, the second in the second temple period, they don't reference this text to learn about the evil inclination. However, they already do have this idea that people tend towards evil as part of their natural makeup, as part of their basic creation as people. So thanks for listening. This was just kind of an introduction to the idea of the evil inclination and what we're going to be touching on a lot more later, which is Second Temple period approaches to this evil inclination and what 
bothers them and what they're trying to get to. Next, in the next episode, we're going to be talking about Ben Sira and his approach to the evil inclination. We're going to see, uh, we're going to start with some, um, so with Ben Sira, maybe some Philo in his philosophical approach to the evil inclination. Philosophical, but really pessimistic, by the way. And uh, we're going to see some interesting things in terms of the way that we, they see human nature. Because, of course, how you think of human nature is very much tied up to this belief in the idea that there's an inclination towards evil and also how you see free will. And we're going to see that a lot in Ben Sira. So thanks for joining me. Please leave your comments on the post page at understandingsin.com. I, and I look forward to speaking with you next time. And thank you to Melissa Cantor. I'm going to say your fake last name so that I get it, uh, get the pronunciation right. And thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. So looking forward to uh, speaking to you all next time and also to reading your comments. Take care. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.